0: Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. I trust that you took a little time last evening to prepare yourselves for this worship this morning by considering Numbers chapters 13 and 14 where we have recounted for us by Moses the event of the twelve spies being sent into Canaan. And the evil report given about the land by ten. They did not say the land was ugly and barren. They said the land was beautiful. The evil report was that Israel was not great enough to take the land. And they they saw the children of Anak there, the children of the giants. And they felt like they were but grasshoppers in their sight. Those pitiful ten spies. Well, the Lord took care of them the way he'll take care of them of all those who give an evil report of the good things that he has given. They died by the plague before the Lord right there. The Lord just killed them dead right there on the spot for their foolish thinking about the land of Canaan. I hope that you also paid attention while we just went through Psalm 95. Because Psalm 95 is a prophecy given by David that bears heavily on that event from Numbers 13 and 14, in which the Apostle Paul will open up in these two chapters. I want to start by directing your attention to the ninth verse of the fourth chapter, and then we're going to come back to three one. But chapter 4 and verse 9. There remaineth, therefore, a rest to the people of God. God created a rest on the seventh day. When after six days of creation, he rested. And he gave that day of rest to the nation of Israel as a special sign between him and them. That was a rest. What a kind and loving thing of Israel's God to allow them to have a seventh day off from all labor every six days. They could have the seventh off. If it were not for that grace... Who knows what the world would have come up with? The world didn't come up with a week of seven days. They stole that from the Bible. Every nation on earth admits that the Bible is true and valuable by keeping a seven-day week. Because there is no way to learn about a seven-day week from the movement of our sun, moon, or any other object. It is purely by the revelation of God's Word. In those nations where there isn't even 1% of their population worshiping God and His Son, Jesus Christ, they still keep a seven-day week. Because Adam knew about the earth being created in six days, and the Lord resting in the seventh, and everyone that came off the ark heard about it through Moses and the nation of Israel, and the Old Testament covenant and all their wise laws were spread abroad. And so we have that covenant of seven-day week with a day of rest. But that was a long time ago. Was that day of rest before Psalm 95 was written? Yes, but in Psalm 95, David's still talking about another rest. But then Joshua took the Israelites, an obedient generation, into the land of Canaan and gave them that beautiful land for a place of rest as well. Was Psalm 95 written after that? It was indeed. So there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that rest is the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which once we've heard that our sins have been washed away by His shed blood, there is no labor, there are no works for us to engage in to secure our own salvation. And that will lead us to heaven where we have an eternal rest. But the real rest is the gospel. Hebrews chapter 4 is not talking about heaven. It's talking about Christianity and the fact that it's a religion of no works because it's all of grace. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, Paul will say, they that believe do enter into rest. He will not say they that believe shall at some time in the future after death or the resurrection enter into rest. They do so when they believe. Because they're able to set aside all their works and trust Jesus Christ and His finished work. We worship a God who is loving and kind and gracious toward His people. And He has a thing for us called a rest. If ye will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. But let's lay hold of that rest today. That rest is in knowing Jesus Christ And in living for Him, it's the greatest balm and relief to the human soul. If you are thinking about your little life, your little job, your little house, your little family, all your little things, they will not satisfy you. There will be no rest. Because your house will never be good enough. Your marriage will never be good enough. Your children will never be good enough. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, you always have something that is good enough. Because He's infinitely perfect. And He can satisfy the soul. It's a place of rest. What a great God to give us rest. He didn't have to. After what we did in the Garden of Eden, He could have driven us like dogs. He could have driven us like slaves. But He made us sons. And He gave us a rest. He gave us a rest. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. The purpose of the book of Hebrews... And the most important word in the book of Hebrews for you to understand it is the title of the book. Just like when you read the book of Leviticus. you You should know that the book of Leviticus is written for the Levites. It has very little to do with you. It hardly has anything for you to do in your life. You are not a Levite, nor are you a priest from the tribe of Levi. The book of Leviticus is the code of the Levitical priesthood. And it gives all their washings and sanctifying ceremonies, and garments, and altar dimensions, and all the other aspects of Old Testament ceremonial worship has little to do with us. We can go in there and find a few principles that help us in life. There are a few statements of God's moral law there, but most of it's for the Levites, and they're long gone. The book of Hebrews is primarily for the Hebrews of Paul's generation. That generation that saw and heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and saw and heard his apostles. What were they going to do with the gospel? Now we, Gentiles of the New Testament, can take a blessing and a lesson from it as well. Because in this book, though not written to a Gentile church, but written to Hebrews, and thus it has so much of it spent on comparing Jesus Christ to the Old Covenant, we can be warned ourselves that we had better be living lives full of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, looking for His coming from heaven, and doing that joyfully, or we will be judged as well for neglecting our great salvation. (coughs) Hebrews. Paul didn't identify himself as the author because the Hebrews wouldn't have wanted to read much from Paul. They did not like him because he was the apostle of the Gentiles. And so he just starts out this book, in a glorious way, and he shows his great knowledge of the Old Testament as you proceed through the chapters. And we want to understand that. This is a warning to that generation, and constantly, chapter after chapter, the apostle is making a warning, don't go back. These are all baptized, professing believers, elect and regenerate children of God, but who were tempted to go back under the law of Moses, and to rejoin ceremonial worship in Jerusalem, because they knew it was the worship of God, because it was so glorious, and because they were being persecuted so heavily. So the apostle had to write this epistle in order to convince them that Jesus Christ in Christianity is far superior to every aspect of Moses' law. And he does a masterful job by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we come to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. We'll take us down to verse 6 is the first half of the chapter. And verses 7 through 19 is the second half. The first half is going to compare Jesus Christ to Moses. The second half is going to compare that generation of Jews to the generation in the wilderness. And that's where we want to heed the warning. We already know Jesus Christ is better than Moses. That was a tempting thought to a Jew because they thought so highly of Moses. We don't even get the two confused at any time. Do we think Jesus and Moses... Or even on the same playing field. But Jews did. When Peter stood in the Mount of Transfiguration. And saw Moses, Elijah, and Jesus glorified together. He said, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's build three tabernacles for you three guys. And all of a sudden a cloud came over Peter. And a voice thundered out of that cloud. This is my beloved son, hear ye him. And they fell flat on their faces in fear because God was offended by such a ridiculous statement by Peter, who would equate Moses to Jesus Christ. We don't have any such temptation. So we can look at these verses quickly. But when we come to the second half and see the warning about being deceived through sin, and our hearts hardened, so that we do not live all out for the Lord Jesus Christ, we can relate to that very well. We fight that battle every day. Verse 1 of Hebrews 3. Wherefore... Holy Brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. In chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul has proven the full deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. And he's proven the full humanity of Jesus Christ. He was made a little lower than the angels. But now he's crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of God. From chapter 2. Paul had also presented him in chapter 2 as being a great high priest. He says in the middle of verse 17 of chapter 2 that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Jesus Christ was fully God, chapter 1, and he was fully man, chapter 2. And in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, 2.18, he is able to succor or help those that are tempted. He is a great priest. That's already been introduced and taught. So chapter 3 and verse 1 is drawing a conclusion from the first two chapters with the word wherefore. Wherefore. Now there are three statements in this first verse that prove the people he's writing to are children of God. I am so sick and tired of people thinking that Paul's writing reprobates. Paul wouldn't waste his time writing reprobates. What a waste of an epistle. He is writing children of God, baptized believers that are thinking of going back because they're being persecuted and it was hard to leave the religion that they had grown up with all their lives that they knew was the religion of God. But it was the time of reformation in which that worship was being reformed, which is why Jesus said, woman, the hour is coming when neither you nor they in Jerusalem are going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because the form of worship was changing. John, Jesus, and the apostles changed it from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Wherefore, three points. Holy brethren, he doesn't just say men and brethren, referring to them as citizens of his nation. He says, holy brethren, those are sanctified, set apart, consecrated, elect children of God, to partakers of the heavenly calling. They weren't spectators of the heavenly calling. They weren't readers of the heavenly calling. They weren't hearers of the heavenly calling. They were partakers of the heavenly calling. And they had already made their profession of faith. In the last part of the verse when Paul said, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. You've professed him. I've professed him. We've both professed him. He is our Savior and our Lord. Let's consider him in all the glorious aspects of his apostleship, and priesthood. An apostle is a messenger. Jesus Christ was called in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, twice he was called in one verse, the messenger. He is the messenger of the covenant. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that brought the message of God's covenant to Israel. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider. And this is why we come together. This is why we read the Word of God. To consider. To consider something is to consciously think about it. Is to meditate upon it. Is to dwell upon it. And that's what we want to do about all the glorious aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, let's consider the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll consider Him, there'll be no temptation to want to go back. Because Moses' religion has nothing to offer in comparison to him. Consider him as the apostle of our profession. He is the messenger from God with no peer. Everything God gave him, he declared to the people over three and a half years. He is the high priest of our profession. We don't need Aaron or his sons. We have Jesus Christ. And look at what I've taught you in the first two chapters. He is fully God and he's fully man. What else do you want in a priest? Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession. Verse 2, Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So here's the introduction for a few verses of the Apostle Paul showing Jesus was superior to Moses. Chapter 1 started out with Paul showing Jesus was superior to the prophets. God Who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things. Now that's a big difference between the prophets and Jesus Christ. That's the first two verses of chapter 1. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Being made so much better than the angels, because He hath by inheritance obtained... A better name than they. And it goes on to describe how much better than the angels he was. And that's two chapters. Amen. He was made a little lower than the angels for his humiliation on earth for 33 and a half years. But then he was glorified and crowned with honor in heaven, chapter 2, verse 9, far above the angels. Right. Amen. Far above them. So now it's time for Moses. They thought Moses was a great leader and a great legislator. You want to talk about a legislator? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought the new covenant. Who was faithful to him that appointed him. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was faithful and did everything that God charged him to do. Everything God sent Jesus Christ to do, he did it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus said of himself, I always do those things that please my father. He was faithful to him that appointed him. As also Moses was faithful in... His house. Whose house? God's house. What house? The church of the Old Testament. Was Moses a faithful pastor of that church? Indeed. Is he in Hebrews 11 because he was so faithful? Oh, can you imagine the patience of that man putting up with those stiff-necked people? How many times did he... Wouldn't you have said, Amen, a few times when the Lord said, Stand back and let me incinerate the nation? Wouldn't you have said, Amen, Lord, I'm like Jonah right now. Just give me some popcorn and burn them up. Wouldn't you have done that? Forty years of struggling with that nation. They wouldn't believe. They were stiff-necked and rebellious. But what did Moses do? He'd fall on his face and intercede for that nation one more time. He was faithful. For 40 years he was faithful. Even though he knew he was not going to enter the land of Canaan, he was faithful. You say how can he be called faithful since he sinned at the waters of Merah? Because God is so merciful. Amen. You know if our if our overall character is one of seeking the Lord with all our heart and faithfully serving him, the Lord is so merciful to those errors we make that we repent of, which Moses did because he did sin in the matter of striking of striking the rock instead of speaking to it. And yet Paul, by the Holy Spirit, would say he was faithful in all his house, because for 40 years he was. And he was provoked that time with the, with the rock by the Israelites. The Lord sees all those circumstances, praise his name. Amen. So far, they sound like equals in verse 2. Jesus and Moses sound like equals. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house? Let's see if verse 3 will help us out. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. Yes. This man, Christ Jesus, that we're to be considering, this man, Christ Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses was counted worthy of for a reason. But let's talk about the glory. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, it tells us that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor far above the angels, which would be far above Moses. He was given glory. Moses may have made Hebrews chapter 11 along with Samson and Gideon and a few others, but Jesus is the high king of heaven. He's promoted over all principalities and powers and every name that is to be named in this world and the world to come. Why? Why? Because he who hath built the house is greater than the house and deserves more honor. When you look at a a natural building, a house, a 2,000 square foot house built in one of our subdivisions, when you look at the house, all it is is two by fours and nails and a few shingles, and then you look at the architect or the builder that put it together, which one deserves more honor? The few two by fours that are stuck together and you hope they won't fall apart in a windstorm? Or the man that designed the whole thing and put it together. He's obviously worthy of greater honor, because it was his creative ability and power that brought these raw materials together to make a building. Moses was nothing but a two-by-four. If you I hope you're following me Moses was nothing but a stone in the temple of God of the Old Testament. He was just one of its parts. He was just part of the house. But the Lord Jesus Christ, being God in the flesh, was the builder of the whole thing. He was the one that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and made him great in the land of Canaan, took 75 descendants of his into the nation of Egypt and brought them out a mighty host and gave them his law with Mount Sinai dancing. Who did all that? The Lord Jesus Christ did in his divine nature. He built the house of Israel. He preserved them from the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. He delivered into their hands the seven nations of Canaan. He built the house. He's so much greater than Moses, who was just a little part of the house. He what, Moses wasn't the whole house. When it says, the one that built the house hath more honor than the house, right. he's talking about the whole thing, and Moses was only part of it. Yeah. But God built it all. Amen. What about the New Testament church? Who built it? Jesus Christ. On this rock? I will build my church. Jesus Christ built the New Testament church. And he's worthy of more honor than Moses, the Apostle Paul, or anyone else. When the Apostle Paul was magnifying his office and saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I am a wise master builder, he did say that, didn't he? Think about the house. Paul said, I am a wise master builder. What did he say about Jesus Christ? We are nothing. I plant Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. Amen. If the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't give the increase, nothing's going to happen. So he, Paul, the Apostle Paul was willing to admit himself that though being a wise master builder, he was nothing without God's blessing. And so was Moses nothing without God's blessing as well. Verse 4, for every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. God may use men to assist him in building, but God is the one that enables them, calls them, and blesses their efforts to build anything. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, though they do indeed build it, don't they? Men build houses, but without God's blessing, they can't build a thing. The Apostle Paul said that he labored more abundantly than they all, but not I, but the grace of God that was with me. First Corinthians fifteen ten. Verse 5, Moses, verily, it is true that Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. The old, his house was God's church of the Old Testament. Moses was faithful in it as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. <laughs> Look at the, Moses was a servant In another's house, the house of God, the people of God of the Old Testament. Jesus was a son, not in the house, but over the house. And not just over someone else's house, but over his own house. Is there a difference? Huge difference. And so for these verses, the Apostle Paul is showing these Jews who thought so highly of Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ is far superior to him. He's the son that is over the house, and he's God that built the house, and it's his own house. Moses was just a servant in the house of God of the Old Testament. So don't put your trust in Moses. Don't think of him as being the great legislator that brought you the law of God of the Old Covenant. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the apostle of the New Covenant, the messenger of the New Covenant, that brought far greater news than anything that Moses brought. And so we come down through verse 6a. And there's a division. As Paul draws a conclusion and makes a transitional statement into the rest of the chapter. Right. Whose house? Jesus Christ is a son over his own house. And what is his house? It's the church of the New Testament. All of us churches, all believers, baptized and elect, form a church Form a kingdom that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son over it. He owns it. It's his. He built it. He raised it up out of the Gentiles, according to Acts chapter 15. Whose house we are part of the Lord Jesus Christ's house of the New Testament, we are part of it if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. This is not a conditional statement of getting anywhere. This is a conditional statement of evidence. These people are holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, and have already made their profession in Christ Jesus. But they were tempted to go back. They were tempted to neglect the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The the lesson that we're going to have here from this point until 4.14 is let us hold fast The profession of our faith. No one is making a new profession. No one is being converted. They are all being saved from backsliding. That's why 4.14 is going to say, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Which is the same right here as holding fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That is the evidence of a child of God. Without that evidence, the evidence right there in that sixth verse, you cannot assume or say that you're a child of God. That's the evidence right there. If we hold fast, that means not moving away from it not backsliding, not turning to the left hand or the right hand, if we hold fast the confidence, the faithful belief in God's promises that everything he has said, that he would do, he has done. And everything that he has promised that he will do in the future, he will do. We hold fast our confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. A Christian's life should be full of joy. And if you are not full of joy, then you are not measuring up to what God has called us to do. He wants us to be joyful. In Psalm 95 that we read earlier today, verses 1 and 2 said, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I focused on the word noise for a moment, but we really want to focus on the word joyful. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Because the great God and King that we are dealing with deserves some joy from us. Let's give Him that joy. And here it is stated again, that a true child of God has a profession of faith and doesn't move away from it. They hold fast their confidence that God has done and will do all that he has said he would do or will do. And they rejoice in hope that has been promised to them in the gospel, and they do it firm unto the end. They're doing it solidly unto the end. Those are the children of God. People that are flopping away, backsliding, turning away, getting enraptured with the world, sitting in here like deadbeats. There's no evidence they're a child of God. It doesn't mean a thing that they're in here. That is proof of nothing. They can say all they want, but it's holding fast. The confidence that God is true and God will keep his word. And it's rejoicing in the hope that he set before us that's truly the proof of everlasting life. That's how we know that we are part of the house of Jesus Christ. Whose house are we if we do those things? It doesn't say whose house we shall become if we do those things, but whose house we are. We show that we're that by doing these things. So Hebrews, Paul is saying, Hebrews, don't go back. Keep your confidence. You've made a profession of following Christ You know he's a great apostle and a great high priest. Don't backslide. Hold your profession fast. Rejoice in hope. Firm unto the end. No matter what persecution is thrown at us. No matter what temptations the world gives us. No matter what disappointments we run into. Let's hold it fast and be joyful. This is the word of God in Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. And it applies to us as well. Are you holding fast? Holding it. And it fastened to you. Fixed in your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the New Testament. Are you full of confidence in God? And all that He has said is true and will be true. Are you rejoicing in the hope? Or are you just here dead? The Lord will do to you what he did to the nation, the generation, in the wilderness. Right. He will drop your carcass. And rightfully so. We should be rejoicing in the hope, firm unto the end. He ha- Why didn't Israel want a retirement country? God wanted to retire them. Their cities were built, wells dug, vineyards planted, as I've already said once this morning. Why didn't they want that? Because they hardened their hearts in fear and unbelief. How full of confidence are you? Are you so full of confidence that God is going to take care of you in this world and in the next, that you have no fear and you're full of faith? That's what we're called to be. No fear and full of faith. Confidence. Holding it fast and rejoicing in it. Because we hope for many things that God has promised us. We know they'll come true. So we're full of joy nothing can take us down and destroy us and we do it firm unto the end whether it's our last breath as we gasp for it in a hospital room we're still confident that god's going to take care of us after that last breath and we're going to rejoice in the hope of everlasting life through jesus christ our lord right wherefore wherefore is starts off verse 7 and wherefore, is not a quote from Psalm 95, though everything after it is, all the way down through verse 11. Right. Wherefore, Paul is transitioning now to a point he's going to run for some time. And that is, you Hebrews have an example set for you in Numbers 13 and 14, which David referred to in Psalm 95 of a generation that had offered to them something, as something very good, and they rejected it. And two things happened. God swore in his wrath that they wouldn't ever get it. And God swore in his wrath that he was going to drop their stinking carcasses. And so he killed them all over the next 40 years. Two things. You miss God's best for your life. And you bring his positive, active judgment in chastening upon you. Wherefore? Wherefore? Because those that are truly members of the house of Christ hold their confidence fast and rejoice in hope firm to the end. Because that is a true description of a child of God that is a member of the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ. Wherefore, do not be like your brethren in the wilderness. Wherefore starts a sentence that finishes in verse 12. When something is in parenthesis, you can... you can take it away for a moment to see the sentence. Because it's in parentheses for a point. It is not necessary to the sentence. It is adding additional information. So beginning with verse 7, we can jump to verse 12. Wherefore, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's the two sentences of warning. Because the house of Jesus Christ is those who hold their confidence steadfast, firm, to the end, and those that rejoice in their hope to the end of their life, are the true children of God, then wherefore, brethren, let's take heed to ourselves, lest there be anything in us or among us, that would lead us away from the living God. But let's exhort each other and help each other so that we will stand fast as we approach the end of our lives. In parentheses, Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, which we've read, As the Holy Ghost saith, you know, this is so wonderful, David wrote it, but the Holy Ghost said it. When you read the words of the Bible... You are not reading the words of men. You are reading the words of God. That's right. As the Holy Ghost saith. Today. If you will hear his voice. Harden not your hearts. As in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me. Proved me. And saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation. And said. They do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways so i swear in my wrath they shall not enter in to my rest god offered the nation of israel so much instead of enjoying those cities vineyards and wells they wandered about in the wilderness for the next 40 years like nomads with no place to go until they had all died what a hopeful existence Get up in the morning, go to work, eat, come home, go to bed. Get up in the morning, go to work, eat, go home, go to bed. What a boring existence. To put yourself out of your misery. I'll loan you the tool. Save yourself the misery. What a way to live. God gave them so much. He gave them so much. And He's given us so much. There is a way to live full of hope and joy. Now the God of hope. Fill you. With all joy and peace. In believing. That ye may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Ghost. Romans fifteen thirteen. That is a better lifestyle. That is living all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already commented when we were at Psalm 95 about verses 7 through 11. They're not difficult to understand. The Apostle Paul is pulling forward that event from Numbers 13 and 14 about the generation that came out of Egypt that refused to take the land of Canaan, God's rest and God's best for them. And he's comparing it to this generation of Hebrews that had heard the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles and had seen all the signs and wonders that they had done, confirming that what they were teaching was the truth of God. And he's warning them that as God swore against one generation, he would swear against them as well. And that that word today was describing the gospel day of opportunity for them to repent before the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the gospel would be taken away from them, their city and nation destroyed, And they'd be scattered among all nations. Which is exactly what happened. And the gospel went to the Gentiles. And the kingdom of God went to the Gentiles. And it was taken away from them. Those branches of the olive tree were cut off. And us wild ones were grafted in by the grace of God. And this is a warning to them. And a warning that we can take to ourselves as well. So we come to verse 12. God had sworn against them. Remember, when God swears against you, there's no repentance. If you go read Numbers chapter 14 and Deuteronomy chapter 1, they repented. But it was too late. Do you know Proverbs 29 and verse 1? He that being often reproved, and every one of us is being reproved today. Right. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Remedy. Proverbs twenty nine one, Revelation 2.21 Speaking of the false prophetess in the church of Thyatira, I gave her a space to repent. But she didn't repent, so I'm going to cast her and her children into bed and kill them. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Amen. And call ye upon Him while He is near. Brethren, every single one of us right now, including me, had better be seeking and calling upon him right now, lest we reach a point by having been reproved so many times and having tempted him so many times by loving this world in spite of what he has shown us, taught us, given us, and is leading us toward, that he would come upon us in the same wrath and swear against us. Take heed, brethren, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We are all capable of our hearts being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin to where we would fall in love with the world and the gospel becomes of no interest to us. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Lot ruined his life because he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And the lifestyle of Sodom and the lack of being around the worship of God with Abraham hardened his heart up until he moved into that city, he married his daughters off to their sons. He sat on city council, and his whole life was ruined. Right. Solomon started out by marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, and he ruined his life by marrying outside the Lord. True. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. To depart from the living God doesn't mean that we walk out of here and say, I'm going to worship Satan from now on. Right. right, A lot didn't do that. Solomon didn't do that. If you'd asked Solomon and said, is the devil Satan and is Satan the Lord? I mean, is, the, is Satan God? Is Baal God? Who, who is the Lord, Solomon? Really, come on. Who created you, Solomon. But he had departed from the living God in all of his practices because his wife, stole, his wives, stole his heart. He built temples to false gods because they asked him to, and he couldn't resist women. Nehemiah would say later, outlandish women turned him away from the worship of God. The church at Corinth, if you had walked in there and been able to interview all those that were going to die at the hand of the Lord, they wouldn't have said that they were now worshiping Baal. They wouldn't have said that they were worth worshiping. Diana of the Ephesians, but the Lord cut them down anyway because in their religion and in their worship in the church at Corinth, they were not putting the Lord Jesus Christ up first. He was not there all in all. They were in there for a drunken orgy of eating, calling it the Lord's Supper. Right. You do not. Ha- all you have to do is be a friend of the world. That's all you have to do to depart from the living God. Right. James chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us, that if we are a friend with the world, then we are the enemy of God. Yes, right. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? You like the things they like. Your friends are among them. You spend Your lifestyle is similar to theirs. You like their music. You watch their programming. You're a friend of the world. You're the enemy of God. There is no middle ground. Right. You have departed from the living God. These Hebrews were not going to join some pagan temple. They were going to go back to the Old Testament religion. That would be departing from the living God for them. Because the living God had called them to follow Jesus Christ. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. See, that tells us right there that the word today doesn't mean today in the sense that we mean it. It doesn't mean this 24-hour period. It means a section of days because it says exhort one another daily while it is called today. So there's one period of time called today. And during that period of time called today, these Hebrews were to exhort one another daily. And we should be doing the same so that we're all ready when the Lord comes. That we all are we are ready together to meet the Lord from heaven. That we're looking for His appearing. That we love His appearing. We encourage each other toward it. We speak of the things of heaven. And we lift each other up in our love of Jesus Christ. That's how it should affect us. That's rejoicing in the hope firm unto the end. We help each other rejoice in the hope firm unto the end. Because we can't do it by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit of God and we need each other. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together... As the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. That's why we assemble. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The Hebrews had one day approaching, the destruction of their city, nation, and temple. We have another day approaching when all the elements are going to be melted with fervent heat and burned up. And so as that day approaches, and here we are in the year 2008, we should be exhorting one another to hold fast our profession of faith and be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. While it is called today, while we have an opportunity to do so, we should be doing so. Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. We are made partakers of Christ. We show ourselves we prove ourselves true partakers of Jesus Christ. He's already said that they were partakers of their heavenly calling, but they show it and they prove it. You know, if you read the whole New Testament, you'll find so many more statements like this. For instance, in Second Peter chapter one it says, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Now, is that how you get elected? If ye do these things, you can make your calling and election sure in heaven? Or you can make your calling and election sure right here. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Colossians chapter 1 says that God has reconciled us to himself by the blood of Jesus Christ's cross. If ye continue in the gospel that was preached to every creature under heaven. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Well, what does that mean? That if we ever fall away or we ever backslide... That we're no longer the reconciled children of God, or is it describing evidence? Right. It's describing evidence in how we show that we're God's children and we're partakers of Christ. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter five, Love your enemies that ye may be same that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. In what sense do we become the children of God by loving our enemies? Only in a practical way of proving it. And here it's a practical way of proving ourselves as true partakers of Christ because we live for Him and we love Him and we rejoice in the hope of Him coming. The emphasis being on the word hold in verse 14. The emphasis in verse 6 being on the word hold. It's only those that hold. Jesus would say in John 8 to those that believed on Him, If ye continue in my word, Then are ye my disciples. Your belief is not enough. Ye need to continue, which is holding here, which is going to be the word in 414, holding fast the profession of our faith. That's the evidence, because that was his great fear. Paul's reason for writing this epistle was to keep them from falling away, but to exhort them to hold. Verse 15, while it is said, where is it said? Psalm 95 And verse 7, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. There is an if. Based on that if, there are two choices that are made out of that 15th verse. Either you harden your heart in unbelief, or you soften your heart in belief. You make a choice. And verse 16 goes on to say, for some... When they had heard, it said, If ye will hear his voice. The gospel's being preached to these people. Paul's comparing it to them hearing the offer of Canaan made to another generation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. That's why it's called the day of provocation. Because that generation that heard the land of Canaan was theirs to take. It was the land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they wouldn't do it. They provoked God by not taking his gift. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. And these Hebrews, if they heard the gospel and went back and chose Moses, angels, and prophets over the Lord Jesus Christ, they were going to provoke God. And go read some of the statements in the gospels where Jesus Christ said, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man. To a king that sends out an invitation for men to come to the wedding of his son. And he sends out the messengers and they they were too busy. They were too busy for the, to come to the wedding. What will that king do? He will go and burn up their city. And that's exactly what he did because there wasn't an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Jesus stood and looked over Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, the time is coming. Because you have missed your day, that this place will be leveled to the ground. Luke nineteen forty-one through 44. There will not be one stone attached to another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because the Lord of glory had come and visited them. And He came and visited us. And so we have verse 15. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, don't do what they did, and that is provoke God to wrath. Verse 16, for some, how many? How many? What was the percentage that provoked God to wrath of those that came out of Egypt? There were 600,000 footmen plus women and children. How many made it into the land of Cain that didn't provoke God? Two. The percentages are bad. No wonder we saying, broad is the road that leads to death. Very few there be that find the straight and narrow path that leads to life. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, how be it, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. You ought to read that verse in a New King James Bible. It says, no one made it to the land of Canaan. Right. The King James Bible says, leaves an exception that it wasn't everyone that died in the wilderness, but most everyone. And just uses the word some. It just says something you've got to compare other elsewhere. I'm not going to do it for you right now. Verse 17, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Here are some questions. With whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? That tells us who it was. It was those that didn't take the land of Canaan. Those that believed the ten spies. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believe not. Who was it? But to them that believe not. It was the unbelievers that did not hold fast their commitment to follow God. They left the land of Egypt behind Moses. They killed the Passover lamb and spared their oldest children on the night they left Egypt. They had water provided for them. They had manna provided for them. God blessed them abundantly. He led them through the Red Sea. He drowned the Egyptian army. But they got to the edge of Canaan and they didn't believe. And there are going to arise temptations and trials in your life. There are going to arise attractive things in this life to steal your affections away. There are going to arise persecutions in this life that will discourage you. But you are to hold fast the confidence firm unto the end and the rejoicing of our hope firm unto the end. All the way to our last breath. To whom swear he? Listen, the Lord swears against his own people. This wasn't swearing against the Philistines. He didn't need to swear against them. They were already under his curse. But he cursed his own people and swore against them. No wonder it says in Hebrews 10.31, a few chapters from now, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No wonder it says in 12.29, for our God is a consuming fire. Not our God was a consuming fire, but he is. Verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That passage from Psalm 95 was describing the gospel day that the Apostle Paul was presenting to the Hebrew nation. John started it, Jesus continued it, and the apostles had confirmed it. 2, 1 through 4 describes it so well. 2, 1 through 4, confirmed by the signs and wonders of the apostles. But they could not enter because of unbelief. That generation in the wilderness missed the beautiful land of Canaan and their retirement homes already built for them because they were fearful and because they didn't really believe the promises of God. They lost it all, so they missed God's best for their lives, and God dropped their carcasses in the wilderness under chastening. Every time that we choose the things of this world, we miss God's best for our lives and we bring his chastening rod down upon us. And that chastening can get extremely severe and God can just cut off your life. Or God can give you what you think you want, like he gave Israel quail on one occasion and send leanness into your heart so that you live out your days in this world frustrated, lonely, Discouraged and unsatisfied. I'd rather take a quick death than to live that miserable of an existence. But there is for those that will believe, we can enter into rest. Glorious rest. Rest full of joy and confidence. And that's what we'll take up in chapter four when we come back after our break. Brethren, a horrible lesson given in Numbers 13 and 14. Confirmed by David in Psalm 95. But it's real warning brought into the New Testament that that generation of Jews hearing the gospel had to face the consequences of them departing from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we face the same thing. Are we going to let this world, are we going to let Egypt take us away? Or are we going to press into Canaan and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy His best for our lives Walking with God and then being received up into glory to spend eternity with him in heaven. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.